In a famous 1963 speech, Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed of a future in which his children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Today, that dream is far from realized, and the idea of being colorblind is increasingly regarded as entrenching racism. Instead, we're encouraged to regard people as members of racial, ethnic, and other group identities. What is racism, and what does it take to combat it? Does colorblindness, as many people claim, worsen the problem? I'm Ilan Jurna. Welcome to the New Ideal Podcast. I'm joined today by my colleague, Onkar Gatte. Hey, Onkar. Hi, Ilan. We're going to discuss, we're going to discuss uh, several aspects of this debate and sort of the wider issue of racism in America. Just to let everyone know, we're live on YouTube, Facebook, Zoom. And if you'd like to submit questions, we'll make time for them uh, near the end of the conversation. You can reach us. The best way to do that is on the YouTube Super Chat, and we'll be trying to monitor the Zoom Q&A as well. So, Ankar, I thought maybe a good place to start is with what Martin Luther King was trying to articulate in that famous speech. Now, sometimes people, I think, look at the man and, and they see things they don't agree with, and then that kind of clouds their view of what he was saying. So what do you take his, his goal to have been in that statement? This is one of the most famous lines from the speech that everybody remembers. And I think you can think of that line that um, he hopes that his children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character as articulating an ideal of a place in America that we want to reach. I mean, so he's dreaming that uh, it's a dream and a dream for the future. So it's not a view that this is, has already been achieved. But this is the direction in which we should be heading. So it's a goal or an ideal. I think that's the right way to think of it. That's how I think of it. And I think most people, when they think, yeah, there's something very right about this, think of it, this is a goal, this is an ideal. It doesn't mean they endorse everything that King has argued, both in terms of his views and tactics. So, But it, it's, it's remembered, I think, because... It's thought of that if you're going to be consistent with America's ideals and its founding viewpoint, then this is the place that we want to get to. So I reread the speech uh, over the weekend, and I, I found it incredibly inspiring, actually. Not, not everything, not the, those aspects of it I disagreed with, but the, it was a very powerful speech. And I think the part, really what I took away was that idea that we can get to a place where people are not looked at uh, as members of a racial group. And I think that's really important to get out of that. Uh, one thing I, I would say is that, um, that, you know, in reading about this issue in preparation for the conversation, I realized that it's, it's kind of surprising that there's pushback against it because it seems, well, we've had hundreds and hundreds of years of people putting race as the most important feature, or very important feature, or using that to hold people down. And now we're, we're hearing, okay, we have to go back to putting race as an important feature. Uh, and make of that, I mean, what, what do you think are the best arguments that people make in that line of thinking? Well, it's so there's this critique that uh, I think it's, this is what we need to focus on today, of that colorblind is, there's something wrong with that as and it's not always articulated clearly. I think it's wrong as an ideal or wrong to think the way to achieve King's vision is to be colorblind now. 
And uh, you said, I didn't reread the speech. I've read the speech, but I didn't reread it in preparation for this. Does he ever use the term colorblind? I didn't catch that. No, I didn't. Yeah, think I, so. I, I wasn't looking for it, but I didn't. I, it was surprising that it wasn't there. At least it didn't leap out at me. Yeah. I, so it, it's one way of sort of translating or giving a term or a tag to what he was arguing. And part of the so pushback to that, I think, focuses on the blindness. And there's something wrong with being blind. I mean, you don't normally think it's desirable to be blind versus to be able to see. And some of the argument focuses on that. And I think in a, it, I mean, in a sense, you can say it's in an understandable way, but in a very concrete, um, unphilosophical way. If you think of the, so where else is blindness used? And he's talking about, so I hope they're not judged by the color of their skin. I hope they're judged by the content of their character. And I think that second part, will need to come back to. But if you're bringing, and if it's been translated into it's a blindness, the original um, image for this is this, the Statue of Justice being blind. And again, if your reading of what that means is that to be just and what you're hoping a judge is going to be is that he's going to be blind, that he's not going to see things, he's not going to look at the facts and so on. That is not what the, why this that has become a um, like a worldwide image of justice. You put the statues blindfolded, so it's supposed to be. What it means is you're blind to the things that don't matter. That is, you don't take into account, you don't give any consideration to the things that in the in the pursuit of justice are inconsequential, and that if you do give weight to them. If you do say, yeah, this is important, we've got to consider this, this makes a difference, then you're no longer pursuing justice. And if you think of it in that blindness, in that kind of case, then what King is saying is that it's not important what the color of my children's skin is or what anybody, the color of their skin is, that if you're going to care about doing what is good or what's right or what's just, this is something you will not give any weighting to. You will not look at and, and think. And that, so if you think of it like that, then you can ask, so is there a problem? If you think of colorblindness like, like that, is that a problem? But one kind of the kind of counter argument is that blindness is not a desirable trait, which is true in a context, but not this context. Yeah, reading some of the arguments uh, critiquing the idea of colorblindness, it, it struck me that people were talking past each other some of the time in the sense that we have this term colorblindness, and we've put it in, in quotes for the title of this conversation because it's, it is not clear what it means. It, it, I don't think it's being defined very well, and people are bringing into it. They're putting under this heading things that they think are good or things, things that they think are problematic. So they emphasize it's the blind part or it's, we don't want to look at color. And I, I was struck by, so one of the arguments that people make, as you suggested, is that if you're blind to the situation we live in today, then if you're blind to race, you're blind to the actual experiences of many people, particularly minorities and African-Americans, and, and the difficulties that they face, and not just difficulties, but discrimination and, and other kinds of uh, persecution. 
now there's leaving aside the question for the time being of how to you know how widespread that is and so but the, i think there is evidence that the, that people face that it's not a question at all in my mind but just bracketing how severe it is then if you're ignoring that i think yes you're going to have a challenge of getting towards any kind of ideal outcome and, it, and i certainly don't think colorblind is the right term for describing someone who is ignoring the problems of racism today now i mean, definitely I've encountered lots of people who will tell you, yeah, racism is not a problem anymore. It's gone. It's, it's fixed. We've reached what we think that's true. Um, and I wouldn't characterize that as colorblind. I would just characterize that as ignoring the reality that we live in. I mean, it's, it's just being out of touch with the facts or, or just really not thinking about them uh, or making an effort to think about that. So if we separate that out from colorblindness, um, I think it is true that if you're ignoring the scale or the nature of the, the forms of racism that exist today, that is a problem. And I can see that creating a dynamic where it persists. It, it's harder to fight something you're not looking at. Uh, so I, you know, listening to that kind of critique, if you sort of separate out some of the elements, that is actually, I find that plausible. Like if you have cancer and you don't look at it, if you don't go and get screened and you don't think about sort of where it is and how significant it is, yeah, it's going to be a lot harder to figure out what to do about it. Um, but I wouldn't call that cancer blindness. I would just call that you're ignoring the facts. Yeah. And I, I often think that metaphors can cloud thinking. And so the color blind that it's, and as I said, blindness is normally thought of as a negative. You don't want to lose your sight and go blind. Here it's being put as in as it's a positive. And it's hard if you don't if you can't get away from the metaphor, if you only have the metaphor, it is very difficult to think. And so yeah, the stories we read, and we're looking at stories sort of in the popular press stories, and we read some from Oprah's magazine, from Psychology Today, from the Atlantic. And they quote people, and I've certainly heard this, where it's the people say, I don't see color. Or I've been taught not to see color, so I don't see color anymore. And yeah, the, the argument is that if you literally don't see color, you won't be able to see when people are being discriminated against because of their skin color. And it might be, so one way I think to think about it in a non-metaphorical way, you might have it as an ideal, that, that is the goal, the end point we want to reach is when people don't give any significance to skin color in the same way that you could say you don't give significance to height. You don't think, well, short people or something wrong with short people. They're inferior in some kind of way. Tall people are a better uh, color of their hair, color of their eyes. And as, a, as an end point and an ideal that you're getting to a point that that skin color is in that category of the inconsequential, the unimportant, and you don't think about it. That's different than thinking that today, that's how everybody thinks. That's the world that you live in. So that it's um, when people say that, no, but it, I'm being treated unfairly it, because of my skin color. It's, well, I can't see that because I don't see skin color. It, it's That is what they're pushing back against. And you can understand, as you said, I think it's right to think that you can understand that that pushback, if someone is taking this to mean we've reached the ideal and so there's no problems left. And, and you can't even, the part of the argument is you can't even see the problem because you've said that I don't even, color doesn't even, skin color doesn't even register. 
So, you know, just to take the other side of this issue and look at the arguments that are put forward. So there is that critique of of colorblindness. The the other kind of view is that, um, so taking that kind of perspective as a given, people then argue, this is often here in more academic arguments, that the, the way to get racism tamped down to combat it is to make everyone much more aware of racial identity and racial groupings. And the argument I, I see is only by making people more sensitive to their racial grouping can you get people to be more attuned to the actual difficulties that, and, and the prejudice and the discrimination that some groups face and that others groups, other groups do not. Um, and this is then... So this is all framed in terms of white privilege and people who are white, if they claim to be colorblind, they don't recognize that they're not discriminated against, but there are other groups who do. I'm interested in your reaction to the argument. I have a very strong view of uh, reaction to this, but your view of the idea that we need to emphasize race in order to make people just make people more sensitive to the problems in the present today. Yeah, there's a, I think a package deal here of putting together two things that don't belong together and it's disastrous. And, and yeah, we need to talk a fair amount about this. I put it one way and I'm interested. You said you've had a, ne- a very strong reaction to this as well. It's one thing to say that against the issue of color blindness, that if a person literally says, look, I don't see color. It doesn't register to me that you can be oblivious to racial problems that still might exist and oblivious to the fact, particularly, that um, people are being discriminated against, treated unfairly for a non-essential collectivistic issue that it's, well, they all have the same color skin. And so I draw conclusions and generalizations based on that, that, that there's something really, really perverse about that. And that you need to look at color in order to register that, to, 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 to be able to actually note and see the facts about discrimination. That, that's very different than saying that the color of anyone's skin and the way that they're grouped into these collectives, and whether it's white, black, brown, and there's a whole bunch of others, it's these for everyone are not important. They're non-essential. We want to get to the point that nobody thinks of themselves in terms of that it's something significant about me because I have a certain skin color. And that's blurred, that it's, it's treated as, no, there is something significant and important about a person because of their skin color. And that's not true. And if you package that together with you have to look at skin color to understand some discrimination that actually still exists today. Those are two very different claims. I was interested in one of the critiques of that view that I read. It was in one of the Atlantic articles that we looked at. It, one of the things that is argued in the opposite direction is that if you make, if you make it a, a norm or a, something that everyone in society is expected to do to become more attuned to your racial identity, uh, then you're going to, uh, and particularly the idea that white people are, are uh, not discriminated against and they should look at sort of their role in this whole problem, that it kind of creates, 
it's going to energize the people who are already interested in becoming and, and sort of trumpeting their white identity because they're racist, they're, they're neo-Nazis or they're, they're former clans people or worse kinds of things. When I read that, I, I, I mean, I suppose you could do studies and see, does it actually work that direction? I think the logic of it makes sense to me. I can see why it would energize people. And it would also make, I can see why it would make them feel uh, embattled. Like, yeah, everyone's pointing at the white people. So there's this argument that it, it's going to energize the worst elements of the people who want to keep racism going by telling everyone, yes, you have to come and find your group and then identify with it. And then you might decide that you are uh, pressed, pressed upon or, pre- or marginalized. One thing that's stra- so I'm interested in that. But the, the other thing that came to mind is, it's and you can I suppose there are ways to form kind of define a study and see if this actually works. I, I'm skeptical that you can do a kind of empirical study of whether this dynamic actually works. But there is I mean it struck me there's a historical uh, um, situation that's almost like a natural experiment where this actually something like this happened and, and the results were uh, evident. So the, the example I'm thinking of is in. Um, in Europe in the 19th century, early 20th century, there were a lot of uh, Jews who are assimilated, which means that they didn't see themselves as religious. They were mm-hmm. European in every respect. They spoke the local language. They were born in whatever European country they were. And to the point where they, they it was just a, an accident of their uh, ancestry that they were Jews. They were Frenchmen or German in every other respect that, that mattered to people. And it what happened that there, there was a climate of increasing tribalism and racism from different directions. And, and over time, what that led to is that this abandonment of the idea of assimilation, that you could be a Jew who was French and be French first, and the growing awareness of Jewish identity, because they were really persecuted and there was a problem that mm-hmm. you couldn't quite solve. And so the dynamic there really was that you couldn't, that it, that it did, making people more sensitive to race in a certain way or tribe or, or kind of a group identity did cause that kind of awareness. And I mean, it's a very different context, right? I don't think white people are persecuted the way Jews were in Europe. It's not at all the analogy I'm drawing, but I'm drawing out the, the commonality that when you push that direction, when people really are told you have to, you, whether you like it or not, you're part of this group. People start thinking of themselves that way, partly for self-defense, but partly because this is how it's unavoidable how other people see you. Yes, there's a there's a difference. I mean, the way I think about it, similar to what I, what I had said, um, is there's a difference between telling people that you're part of a group and the way our society is still functioning. There's discrimination of one group against another and that you may be viewed as part of a group, but that you shouldn't think of yourself as part of a group. Like this isn't essential about you or about anyone else. So you can, like this is part of the dynamics about the discrimination and this kind of injustice. If you discriminate, take American history, the, the massive discrimination from slavery then to the the um, Jim Crow against blacks, there's a tendency then for the people who are discriminated against, and it will often be put as marginalized, but they are marginalized in a cultural, societal, legal sense. That's certainly true. They're, they're marginalized in that, that they'll see themselves as like, we have to stick together. We have to band together. 
our group is important. But the reason it's important is because everybody's discriminating against them on the basis of something that doesn't matter at all, which is the color of their skin. You don't want to simultaneously tell them, yeah, but your skin color does matter. Like it is something significant about you. You're feeling like it is significant because you're being discriminated against based on your skin color. So it seems like really essential to this society and this culture, but that's what's perverse and unjust. But there's an incredible blurring and worse of that's happening now that it's, no, this is something essential about you. Um, that, that is your, your, the color of your skin. And what is mixed together is often it's your, the color of your skin slash race, but I don't think race is real, a real concept here. I think it's much better to use color of your skin as Martin Luther King used in his speech and your, the culture you come from. And those are not the same thing. One is, um, and for two reasons, uh, two fundamental reasons, your skin color is not chosen and it's not important in the sense causally. What, what effects result from someone's skin color? Nothing. There's nothing important that it's your have lighter or darker skin. Um, culture is something that is created by a lot of people's choices and it is something important. You should think and think carefully about like what is good about my the culture I live in? What is bad? What is good in other cultures? What is bad? And if you're trying to move to something better, you want to think carefully about that. There's no similar question or perspective of like what skin color is good, what skin color is bad. And if you put those together, something that is is completely non-essential and unimportant, and some and and not chosen, with things that are chosen and that are important. Um, you can't think clearly and you're going to lead, it's going to lead to all kinds of errors and injustices. And I think that's part of what, uh, we can talk about that more, but I think that's part of what this, um, the, this push against color blindness is actually doing. So say a bit more, what, how do you see it playing out then? I, so here's from one article that it's talking about, Color blindness, and it and it brings up both issues. That if you're li- literally today blind to color, that you can't notice differences in people's skin colors, you'll be um, oblivious to forms of uh, uh, injustice and discrimination that go on. So here's one way it's put in in, in one of these articles: in a color blind society, white people who are unlikely to experience disadvantages due to race can effectively ignore racism in American life, close quote. So that's the issue of, like, if you literally don't see differences in people's skin color, you won't notice when people are being um, unjustly penalized because of the color of their skin. And that is true in so far as it goes. But a few paragraphs later in the article, as a person of color, I like who I am. And I don't want any aspect of that to be unseen or invisible. The need for colorblindness implies there's something shameful about the way God made me and the culture I was born into that we shouldn't talk about. And so that there's something shameful about the way God made me and the culture I was born into 
those should not be in the same category. There's the, no one should feel shame or pride in the color of their skin. It's completely irrelevant. Um, and the, it's, it's, I mean, such a primitive form of collectivism to think uh, of viewing people not as individuals, but as what's crucial is the membership in some group. And here it's an unchosen group. That is what your skin color is, that thinking of it like black people belong together and white people belong together. It's an unchosen group on a characteristic that makes no difference at all. Um, and to view people like I'm going to think differently about white people or black people, it's that like it's such a primitive form of collectivism. That's very different than thinking like about the, your culture, and even if it's the culture you're born into, like was I born into a good culture? Does <laughs> my culture suck? Um, and that you should think about, and not just take pride because this is what you happen to be born into, and think it's good because this is where you were born into. Um, I mean, I'm. I often bring up I'm in, on these kinds of conversations. I'm mixed race. Um, I come from Indian German culture. I think there's really bad things in both cultures and the idea that i'm going to think oh this is good because and i have to that i have to think of indian culture as great or german culture as great because that's the culture i happen to have been born into or that my parents come from that's perverse to think that i want to pick up on something you raised and uh, let me acknowledge thank you for the support on super chat we appreciate it if you guys have questions you're welcome to put them there Got one question that uh, come up has come up from one of our Zoom uh, viewers, and I, I, it was actually something I was thinking of raising too. So let me uh, put it to you: You're saying uh, that race is an irrelevant uh, characteristic in people's life. It's morally neutral. I mean, that's my way I would characterize it. And um, can you say a bit about how you think of the concept of race? Is it is it a useful term? Does it capture anything? And without sort of separating it out from the claim that it, it's sort of it's defining of you or it's defi- sort of morally significant, how do you think of race as a concept? Um, I don't. When you read some of the biological investigation of this, I think it, it's it the the viewpoint is, and I think it's right that it it's not a valid concept that that there aren't different races in the way. And it's certainly, if you think white and black or something, these are two races. There is not a biological um, correspondence of that. that There's not actual facts that support that. I was reading or rereading Ayn Rand's essay on racism, which is a profound essay. She's situating racism as, I mean, she's the one who identifies it. It's, It's the lowest, most primitive form of collectivism. And her initial description of it is of thinking of your genetic lineage as important. She doesn't put it in terms of race. She later in the article talks a little bit about race, but it's thinking of what counts is who your ancestors happen to be. And so she views it as a wider phenomenon. So it can involve skin color, but it can involve that a person thinks, uh, and these are some kinds of examples that she brings up. Well, my great great grandfather father was a senator, or grandmother was a concert pianist. So that somehow makes me good because I'm in that gen- genetic lineage. Um, and if you if you think of it in that wider um, form, it's sort of the the 
worship of your ancestors. And if you think of aristocracy and the descending of, of, of passing on political power from that it's inherited, but it's inherited because of your blood, which is another kind of torn, um, term that Ayn Rand uses early on in discussing what this viewpoint really is. I think that's the better way to think about it. And it's, if you know some of the 19th century discussion of this, of race, and it was treated as a kind of more scientific, um, as a kind of implication, I don't think a real, a correct implication, but drawing out of, uh, Darwin and evolution and things like that. That's a, a dressed up scientific version of the much more primitive of thinking of bloodlines and who your ancestors are, that that determines that if you're good or bad, um, so that if you can trace that uh, some connection to, again, examples Ayn Rand brings up in the essay, uh, that people who live in Germany can trace some genetic lineage to Beethoven or some, or Schubert, that makes them good. And if you, for someone else, can trace some lineage to uh, a mass murderer, that somehow makes the individual you're dealing with now bad. And that is, there's absolutely no evidence for that. Um, it is, and this is, it's part of it being the lowest form of collectivism. Nobody can really think that this matters. So there's one, one thing I want to draw out from this. I, in the last you know, 15 years, I've been more and more sensitive to this growing phenomenon uh, on you see it from people who, in some of them in the past were more reputable, that uh, some of them were never reputable. But this idea that, if you think about Western civilization, that it was somehow rooted in race and that it's, it's inseparable from the white, so Anglo-Saxon, or I'm not sure how even they put it. And it always struck me as another form of racism. And that if you think about, so this is sort of the blending of, of culture, which is something that's chosen and created, and that you can evaluate objectively and has significance in, in different dimensions, and the idea of race. And, and so I'm interested in how do you think about Western civilization as a culture and, and what is good about it, what's bad about it. And, and I think we both agree it, it's, it's separable from race, right? I mean, it's, it's not at all that. Yeah, and th this is, I, I, I put it that there's, Two things when you're thinking about skin color that, uh, or, and I was putting it for genetic lineage, part, so versus the content of your character, um, there are other attributes of a person that you might think of in certain contexts as these are important. You don't view them as fully chosen, but they nevertheless, you think of them as they have causal significance. So the, somebody's intelligence, if, and if you think of intelligence as a raw potential, that can matter that someone has that you need for certain jobs or whatever, real high intelligence. Um, if you're going to be a theoretical physicist, you need above average intelligence. You still need to do a lot of chosen things to develop that intelligence. But that you might think, OK, so intelligence is a characteristic of people. It's not you don't choose your level of intelligence as a potential. You might think of that as significant because it plays a causal role in all kinds of things in human life. Skin color plays none except when people make it an issue, and then it plays a perverse role, like a very negative role. But causally, it has no significance, and that's part of what's important for thinking. If you really thought Western culture 
And think of the achievements of Western culture uh, through 2,000 plus years from the Greeks to the Romans uh, to the Renaissance to the Enlightenment to our modern world. And if you really thought that like, this is skin color, that that's the cause or it's a central cause, you're giving causal importance to skin color when it has none. Um, so you can't think of any culture as it's essentially a product of the people's skin color who happen to have been the ones who created that culture. Because then you're saying it has a causal role that it just observably does not have. So there's, I mean, it's a non-starter to think of Western culture as this is a product of whiteness or something. Nothing's a product of whiteness. Nothing's a product of blackness or brownness. They don't play any causal role. So you have to then look at the ideas um, that people are forming, advocating, that are gaining footholds in, and I think of the birth of Western culture in ancient Greece. And you see in ancient Greece, this is before the birth of Christ, all kinds of new ideas that I think in their total, you don't find any parallel to anywhere else in the world, in China or India or Africa, among the thinkers operating there. And it, so there's something distinctive about Western culture, but there's things distinctive about Chinese culture or Indian culture. But it comes from a set of ideas and values that are put into practice, not um, from the skin color of the people who were operating at that time, what their skin color happened to be. But one thing that's shining me about, about the, yeah, go on. Oh, sorry, I said talk more about the, some of the content of the ideas of Western culture. But the idea yeah, of describing it. Be, yeah, I think it would be useful. Yeah, right. One thing I wanted to just piggyback off is what when people talk about a culture, something that gives that they're born into and that they take a lot of pride in. I it it I don't find it plausible. I I wonder about the motivation behind it. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what it is, but sometimes it's obvious. And the the thing that I always go to is that when you look at different cultures and you evaluate them objectively and you see what's good about them, if there is something good, then it's something that anyone from outside that group can accept and adopt and, and gain value from. So I think of Western culture as something that has it's spread around the world. I don't think it's even, we call it Western, but it's not really a geographic denominator. It's not denoting anything geographic anymore. And that what we need to recognize is that there's a body of ideas that whether you're born of mixed races, you are, whether you're born from some, who knows what kind of pedigree, who cares, you can, you can identify those ideas and you can make them part of your life. You can adopt them and, and uh, make them a feature of your thinking. So to me, that is sort of much more helpful in thinking about culture and, um, and sort of the way it plays out in life. Because, you know, there is, um, it, 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 I think it's really problematic to think of the elements of a culture as, well, it's only for the people who were born into it, or it's only if you, and if you, poach on this territory, you're doing something wrong. I think that there's a really profound misunderstanding of what culture is when you look at that. Yes. And it, it's, a, it's really a package deal. So I don't think it, when you talk to people and you talk about culture, 
there'll be many people who say it doesn't involve ideas and values, but they'll say, yeah, it involves that and it involves geographical location and the, as it will often be put, the ethnicity of the people and ethnicity itself. And Ayn Rand talks about this in her article, Global Balkanization. That term itself is a package deal. It puts together things that should not be put together in one total, in one package. And it puts together the, the things that involve ideas and are a product of thinking, whether I think it's correct or not, but ideas and values that come to dominate in a particular era in a certain geographical location is a result of chosen things. And it puts that together with um, what your traditions are and what your race slash skin color is. And, it, and it's a product of ethnicity. You're at the people's ethnicity. And that's not true. It's a product of their thinking or lack thinking of lack of thinking. I mean, but or thinking broadly in the sense that it includes you can make errors, missteps, and so on, both in your ideas and in your values. That plays a role. What the people's skin color was and so on doesn't. Now, it's part of the culture if they ascribe significance to it. <clears throat> so you could say it's part of 19th century culture in the American South that they think skin color is really important and there's different races and one should be enslaved and so that, but that's their ideas and their values. It's not a product of they were white skin. It's a product of they have uh, mistaken and, and worse than mistaken. They have irrational, irrational, mystical ideas about the human interaction and how we should live in society. But that's part of their ideas and values. It's chosen and you can learn something else. And th so the idea that you're born into a culture, you as an infant are the same as anybody else as an infant born in somewhere else. You don't have the culture. Um, I mean, the racist view is the culture is implanted in you because of your genetic lineage, but it's not. You're just a potential, uh, you're, as it will be put in philosophy, tabula rasa. You don't have any content. And what you come to learn, if you're from your, the cultural environment you live in, anybody could have learned if they grew up in that culture. And that's the sense of any culture is the essence of it is ideas and values, which are open to anyone to learn and to agree with or reject. So I want to pick up on something that it, it, it's come up in a number of different ways and it's worth making it more explicit and salient. So the idea that at the heart of this debate is race is important and you should emphasize, some people are telling you you should emphasize race. And as you characterize Ayn Rand's view is that racism is a, is a form of collectivism. Your genetic lineage or bloodline, however you, whichever version of that people put forward, it's, it's determining your character, your moral character in an important way. That's part of the claim here. So one thing I wanted to draw out is that this is, there's a, a tension here, or at least if, if not more than that, if you are determined by your race, as some people believe, then taking that seriously, how do you ever solve the problem of racism? Because people are determined in, ter in terms of what ideas they hold. So it, there is a, a, a problem here, which is 
this whole framing takes determinism, the idea that we don't have free will, that we can't fundamentally change and control our direction in life, who can't really uh, decide on the the values that we hold. Uh, If if that is the, the framing, then is there, it seems like it's it's inevitable that people are going to be racist and that you can't really get out of that because that this is how you're, you're, you're from birth, this is your determined kind of content in your mind. Yes, I think that's part of what makes uh, racism the lowest form of collectivism, that it's the the emphasis on determinism, that it's so what's significant if your genetic lineage, your bloodline's significant, it's this these physiological characteristics and issues. That's what determines your identity and determines like underlying determines. This is your identity. It's not created by you. You don't have a role in shaping who you are. It's you're determined by your ancestry. And the the more you push that, the more people feel out of control. So if it's like, I don't have control over who I am, what I will become. I don't put it in um, Dr. King's language. I don't have control over the content of my character. That's given to me by whatever my bloodline it happens to be, who my ancestors were and so on. The people feel out of control. They, you're pushing them into groups because like, if I can't control my own fate, my own destiny, my own character, it's the, it's, I find protection and sort of um, like comrades in the people who happen to be determined in the same way that I am. It's, and it makes communication among different groups important. Like you just have different views for some deter- because the, your bloodline's different than mine. So, and it's you create a gulf that's that you can't breach. Uh, um, if you do this, that it, it, if you think of in the positive sense, the more you teach people that no, you're in control of your character, your ideas, and your value. You need to think about them. You need to evaluate. You need to pick the ones that you think that you think are true, that you have evidence and arguments to think are true, and the ones that you think are valuable. Yeah, you should look at different cultures of and, and different eras in history of what people have thought, ideas and values they've held to think which ones are right, which ones are true. You can't just think that the culture I happen to be born into, because it's modern, Everything's right about it. All its values are right. Like there's many things I think of that were superior in ancient Greece than what the way people think and live and what they value today. But it's you want to emphasize that you can think about this. You have control over this, and therefore you can talk to other people about it and argue and reason and reason together. And that is the that is what is becoming more and more difficult and and for a um an understand not a good reason but an understandable reason the more you pe- tell people you're determined and you don't have control the less people will take charge of their own lives and think they can communicate with other people who are taking charge of their own lives so that that raises a question i think is really important to dig into a bit more which is how does we're all in this culture and there are different pressures people are feeling and, and getting pressed in by 
to identify with a certain race to and you, you describe some of the dynamics for why some people are pulled in that direction what does it take to free oneself from that way of thinking because i think if we, if we take color blindness and we we talked about the ways in which it's correct and to think of it as an ideal if we take that as a direction how, how does an individual in their own thinking so what do they need to do in order to get to that po- to that point to free themselves from the kind of intellectual framework that we have for racism and, and the debate around it today? One is to throw away the, the idea of ethnicity. So don't put together accidental and inconsequential things like the place where someone happens to have been born, the color of their skin, with ideas and values. The ideas and values are things that we should form as a result of a lot of thinking and put in that thinking to figure out what you actually think is true, what you actually think is valuable. And you don't owe loyalty to any group and certainly not to any group that you happen to have born, been born into. I think you brought up a lot about a culture and you find it when people talk about like they take pride in the culture they happen to have been born into. I don't think you should take pride in anything that that has happened to have happened to you. You should take pride in the things that you actually do. So you can take pride in a culture in the sense of, I've come to think there's something really uh, good about this culture. And that's what I'm trying to live up to. So to take I brought up ancient Greece. I think one of the things that I admire about ancient Greek culture is the emphasis that they put on reasoning and reasoning in a deep philosophical sense. It's the birth of philosophy in the Western world. Um, that, that that is something that they stress to live well. You have to engage in that kind of thinking. And I think that's true. And then if you live up to that, vision and you think, yeah, in my own life, I'm taking a philosophical approach. You can think of it as, yeah, I'm living up to an aspect of a culture that I think one should live up to because it's something true and it's something good. That's very different than it's, well, it's what I happen to have been born into. It's no, I wasn't, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I have lineage, a genetic lineage that goes to ancient Greece, and so, but I couldn't care less if I do or not. I think there's something good about the culture and it's worth emulating. And then you can feel pride if you do that, but you're doing it because you've decided that there's something good there. Not it's that you've been told or it's you happen to be in this ancestry. So you have to view it as it's good. So I, I wanted to raise one other issue and we should take some questions because I can see them starting to, to, to stack up here. So I, this is... This is driving to, a, I think, a, general, a point of general interest, but I'll start with sort of a personal angle on this. So growing up, I had a, a, a sort of a secular but Jewish upbringing. And one of the things I realized reflecting on it when I was in my 20s, I realized that I had accepted a lot of ideas that I, I now regard as essentially tribal, if not more than tribal, and that there's a certain kind of group focus in the way I was raised. And it was not just my particular family, it was people we surrounded ourselves mm-hmm. with, our extended family. It's just, I think it was part of being in a kind of Jewish upbringing. And I don't think it's unique to Jews, but this is just the experience I had. 
And as I was unpacking these ideas, I realized that I hadn't accepted these ideas consciously. And for, let me give an example. So um, if, if, say, my brother was dating someone, one of the questions that would always come up was, is she Jewish? Because somehow that matters in, in, in this kind of way of thinking. And I, it doesn't, that just seemed normal to me until I grew up and I thought, well, why is that a question that matters? What is, the, what is she like and what, what does she stand for? And what, how do we, you know, what is she as an individual? What do we know about her? That seems much more important to me in, re, in reflection. So in thinking about having a, accepted or a lot, sort of absorbed, I guess, various ideas that I, I realized were operating in my thinking, I decided to kind of get rid of them and just think sort of more on an individualist perspective as best I could. And I, I think that that kind of, so abstracting away from my experience, if you think about that kind of dynamic where you have accepted certain ideas, you might not even be aware that they're operating. They're, they're there. You can identify them with reflection. So it's not like that you're there of your control, but they bring a certain philosophic framework to your way of thinking and your, your behavior and they're not trivial to remove, though, though they can. I'm interested in your perspective on that in, in, in thinking about the way that we now think of, of race, because there's a lot of debate. So this isn't something we've talked about, but if we sort of zoom out a bit from the conversation about colorblindness, part of what's happened now in the debate about racism is some of the claims are you're racist, you don't even know it. And, and I don't, I, I'm just sort of making that as a very crude formulation that there's more to that. But if you take the idea that, you can have racialized ideas or a certain framework or assumptions or premises that you've accepted or absorbed without knowing they're operative and you are not as sensitive to them. Do you think there's a reality to that? I mean, is there some parallel to what I was describing? Yes, I, I think this happens regularly. You still need, for any specific case, you need specific evidence. So your example was that you were brought up, so this is like over years and years, a lengthy period of time, in a way of looking at the world that it matters if you're Jewish. Um, and it, like, that's a typical example that it, well, if you, are you going to marry within the, however it's thought, within the group, and the group can be cashed out in different ways. And you can consciously come to reject that and still think, Look, I was taught that for years and years and years. There's ways in which I've absorbed that perspective. There's ways in which I sort of look at the world in that way. I might consciously deny it. I might say it's not. No, it's, I don't think of this as significant. And yet more in, more in your action and your habitual practice, you can still see it there. That's a general phenomenon. I mean, so you're bringing it up for um, in terms of... Uh, being raised Jewish. I bring it up, so I teach a lot objectivists, so people who sort of self-identify as I'm a fan or even more of Ayn Rand, I'm trying to understand and live by her philosophy. Um, so, I, and I teach, so I'm teaching objectivism to objectivists, Ayn Rand's philosophy to people who are trying to understand and live the philosophy. And you can have people who've been doing this for 10 years and they will explicitly say, yeah, I think altruism is wrong. I think the idea that what life is about is sacrificing your own values, time, money for the sake of other people, simply because they're other people, they're not you. So you don't count, other people do. That you, if you're studying Ayn Rand's philosophy, you get, 
Yes, she's arguing that that perspective is wrong. What you should be is selfish. You should take your own life and happiness seriously. You can consciously say, yeah, Ayn Rand's convinced me and so on. I think and will teach this to, to people trying to learn the philosophy. Yeah, but you still have altruism in your soul. That is, you still look at the world in an altruistic way that what counts is other people. And if they are suffering or if they say they're suffering, if they say I'm a victim, I'm the underdog, then it's, oh, yeah, okay. All your whole orientation goes to that person because altruism has taught you that's who counts. Other people don't. If they're making money, if they're successful, if they're profitable, they don't count. Um, their whole thing is to serve these people who are victims or underdogs. And you can be viewing the world like that, even though you consciously say that's not the right way to think about things. And it takes a lot to get if you've been and almost everybody in today's world has been raised in an altruistic environment and our whole culture pushes the morality is um, sacrificing your values for the sake of other people. That's just what it means to be good and a good person. You that can be embedded in your thinking, even when you and rightly say, I consciously reject this now. And if you're sort of just only hand waving that I consciously reject this and you don't, then it can really endure in a person. But even if you've consciously accepted that it's wrong, it can still take a lot to free yourself from that perspective. And this is part of what is argued about race and racism in America since you can say since the 60s, since the civil rights movement. And it's there's a plausibility to it. You still need now for particular instances, particular cases, particular individuals or institutions. You need specific evidence to think that something like this is still happening. But it the civil rights, um, it was an enormous struggle to win over America that, that if we take Martin Luther King again, that what he was advocating for the equality of blacks, that that's right. I mean, when you, it wasn't like, okay, they made a few arguments and then everybody agreed. There was massively entrenched racial perspective that skin color really matters. And that cannot disappear overnight, even if politically you make it real um, inroads into ending discrimination in the 60s, that it's, it's clear that many, many people looked at the world in racial terms. That is that they thought skin color makes a real difference. And for that to be jettisoned from people's minds and from the culture, from society, that takes real active work. I mean, just as you were talking about that you have the kind of way of, of you've still felt implicitly more and habitually you're looking at the world like it matters if you're Jewish. It takes active work on your part to get that out of your mind. And if if that's active work isn't done by individuals, then it stays or it lingers at least. Yeah, I mean, you made this point in an event we did a few years ago on racism, which is or I forget if it was you or one of the other panelists, I'm sorry. But it was the idea is that how many decades are we from that turning point in history, from the civil rights movement kind of reaching its apex? It, it isn't, it, it's within the lifetime of many people still around and it's it's not that far. 
And if you think in terms of how long a culture, how, how long it takes for ideas to work their way through a culture, I mean, it's, it's this, it, it helps to calibrate how much more work remains to be done just from the perspective of everyone was really trying, if everyone's really on the premise of trying to undo this consciously, it would still take a long time. So it's not an, it's a mistake to think that you pass some legislation and overnight things are going to change. I think it's, it's just, that's a fantasy. I mean, it's a good thing that you can make progress, but it's, it has to be recognized that just, and I think this is, tell me if you agree with this analogy that just as an individual has to work on their psychology and their, their cognitive, cognitive content and the, the ideas they, they choose to accept and, and live by, which has to be a conscious effort. And you, in effect, you have to, to, to borrow some of Ayn Rand's terms, you're a self-made soul, so you have to, to put the investment into it. So just in the same way that you have to be on that conscious premise and looking for the ideas that you believe and the ones you don't and, and sort of uprooting them, the same kind of thing has to happen on a mass scale for a culture. I mean, and I think it's a harder thing because there's so many people and you have to convince people who aren't already on board, but that that kind of process takes time. And it, it's, uh, it's a mistake to underestimate the, the time scales involved here. Um, yeah, and, and that's if everything's going well. And what you right. had in America, unfortunately, and this is coming in large part because of uh, the universities and the, the academic trends and changes, you had into the 70s and all the way into today more of an emphasis that more of an emphasis that race or as I, I've said, it's normally put in terms of ethnicity, but that brings in um, the, your person's genetic lineage, bloodline, skin color, and aspects of ideas and values and tries to put them together. But the more you're telling people and students that what matters is your ethnicity, like that's something significant about you. And this is what the multiculturalism, the, the the, that as a movement and an academic movement is really emphasizing. Then you're telling people, oh no, skin color and, and genetic lineage, ancestry in some way really matters. So now it's not that people, everyone consciously says, yeah, no, this doesn't matter, but they haven't really fully expunged it from their thinking. Now they're being taught, no, in some way it mattered. Not that like everything's determined by skin color, but there's something significant about you, what your ethnicity is, and you should take pride in it. And if you're pushing that, and you think that, so the, a way of looking at the world that is free from racism, like that, that's going to be the outcome. It's not going to be the outcome. And so I think you see in, in, both sort of camps today that there's the we're explicitly taught in our schooling that ethnicity matters and so on. And one that has uh, emboldened and encouraged the kind of old racism that will be put today as white supremacy um, that that factor in American culture has been emboldened as well, in part because of this. The more you tell people that ethnicity matters, the more that's going to reach also white people um, and who were racist and say, oh, no, man, like maybe there's something right in the, our perspective and so on. And that's what has happened, I think, in America, that it's we just have so much more 
emphasis that race or again, sorry, skin color and your genetic lineage is important when it should be viewed as completely unimportant. Let's take some questions. And I, I, I know we have one or two other things we wanted to bring in to round out the conversation, but there are a lot of questions and I hopefully we'll get to as many of them as we can. Um, so I want to tie in one of the questions here about uh, do you, how do you think about this claim that there is something co- called systemic racism in America? So we touched a little bit about how the ideas can linger and how one has to uproot them. But the, the, And I'm going to put this in quotes. What do you think is systemic racism denoting? Is there some phenomenon in the world and is it right to think of it in those terms? I think there is some phenomenon, um, whether it's right to conceptualize it as systemic. Systemic suggests it's system-wide. And you have to, one, think about what the system is when you're saying that. But if you're putting it as, can there be institutional and cultural biases that people would explicitly either deny or say, no, that's wrong, and, and, and that's not how we act, and it's not how we should act, and so on. And yet, they're still there. I think, yes, there is, there is that kind of phenomenon. Again, you need then specific evidence for thinking it is playing out here in this institution or sets of institutions in regard to this, like in regard to policing and so on. You need real and a significant amount of specific evidence to think that that it's playing out here. But I would put, I'll give two um, parallel kinds of situations. So one that is really worth thinking about, I think is, so just as in the, people think of it as in the 60s, you get the civil rights movement in regard to the uh, Jim Crow South, and but more broadly, the kinds of, discriminatory racist views that still exist in that still existed in America at that time. Um, you had it in regard to uh, the treatment of women, women and, and feminism and so on. And I think just as I think there's been tremendous progress from the 60s to today in regard to race, that uh, we don't live in in this kind of uh, environment where you could think that segregationist laws could be passed and supported by a majority of people. And so if the battle that happened in the 60s is not, if there's still racism today, and so it's not that form, that level, and that degree. So there's been progress. And I think there's been progress in regard to the uh, attitudes and evaluations of women. But does that mean that there treated completely properly, completely justly. I don't think so. And it, I read when, when um, uh, Sheryl Sandberg's, remember her lean-in book, which was a bestseller. It was talked a lot about in the news. I'm sure it was on the Oprah show, just like this, this year of colorblindness now um, is talked about in her magazine. And I read lean-in and part of what it is about, if not essentially about, it's the ways in which at a, at a more subconscious level, 
female employees, engineers. I mean, Cheryl Sandberg's at Facebook, so she's in the tech Silicon Valley world. The way in which they're not treated equally when they should be treated equally. Like, I don't think men and women are equal in every respect and so on. And so there is, there is something to differences in sex. But the, in terms of jobs and promotions and salaries, and they're not treated equally. And it's not that you would have people at the companies say, um, oh, yeah, I know, like our policy is not to treat, treat people, women engineers equally. We don't want to promote them. We don't want to pay them the same. So they might even be trying to do that and consciously say that that's what they do. And yet the actual practice is not that. Um, and it's often, it's part of what Lean In and why it's titled that is that women can absorb this perspective. And I started, because I teach, uh, we were running a, a lot of internships at the time Lean In came, came out. I started looking at when we had the internships and the way the women and the men act. And the way, like Cheryl Sandberg brings up things about like where they sit, how their questions are treated. Like there's a woman's question versus a, a male's question. Are they treated in a different way? And you could see a lot of these dynamics. I could see that, like, yeah, that I wasn't aware of before, like that I hadn't noticed in the way that I now did notice. And that's, that's a phenomenon. And if you really want, like, if you're thinking you want the best student to come forward and you want them active in class and so on, you have to think, is the actual environment and dynamics set up to do that? And that's a positive achievement. Like, it's equality or putting it differently, justice is not easy to achieve. And it's, you have to think in a positive way. Um, so I think that's a real phenomenon. I'll take a different example very briefly. When we talk about corporate cultures, you can think of that like that's an institution wide. The organization, Apple has a certain culture. Microsoft has a certain culture. Facebook has a certain culture. Some of that is conscious. A lot of it is it's un subconscious values and so on. And people coming in can say, you know, this is what your culture is. And even if their statement of values is like we um, value independence and people making mistakes. If the actual practice of the company is every time somebody screws up, they really get chewed out, they don't get promoted and stuff, then your culture is, it's not one that encourages experimentation and failure. Even if your stated value is, we value this. Because in the actual practice, that's not how things actually happen. And that's, that is a real phenomenon. And you should take that seriously if you're thinking about institutions, organizations, and so on. So let's take one more question and then wrap up the conversation. So one issue that comes up, and I, I've seen this when I've spoken on college campuses, I think students are high, highly sensitized to this, this idea of cultural appropriation. I put that in, 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 in scare quotes. If, so the account of culture that you've raised and we talked about is it's a set of ideas and things that are chosen and that it's created and that people should evaluate it objectively and then pick the parts that they think are good and, and discard parts that they don't like. And then that nobody should take the, the culture they're born into just as a given and that we just should feel pride in it without any reflection or any evaluation. So if that's part of the context we're bringing to this, how do you think about, is there such a thing as, quote, cultural appropriation? 
And the, the, I know that the, so it's a very big debate. So just take one aspect of it. Um, yeah, I'm curious what you think. I haven't read enough about the cases I've seen um, have not been persuasive that even there might be a problem here. There is such a thing as um, that you can belittle cultural ideas and values through lack of understanding um, so that you uh, take something, um, again, as I've said, I'm mixed race. Uh, my dad listened to Indian classical music. When I was a kid, I couldn't hear why anybody would listen to this. And it felt alien. I mean, I was born in Canada, so I've been raised in North America. I've lived elsewhere, but essentially, I'm, that's my exposure to, to the, the culture I was brought up, brought up in. I wasn't brought up in an Indian culture. It sounds um, like it's not quite music. And you can... I've come to think now it, it's much more sophisticated than I thought when I was a kid growing up and it's not what I wanted to listen to. But there's an easy way that you could parrot what it is. And that's bad. I don't think of that as cultural appropriation. That's bad. Appropriation, and this is often in the debate, is brought up like, isn't it good when people think, yeah, there's something good about your culture? Um, and if, if they're right, like there's something, whether it's the cuisine, whether it's the music, whether it's the style of dress, not, so not, it involves ideas and values, but embodied in certain practices that you think that that's good. We want to adopt and emulate it. That's how you get developed when cultures interact and so on. That what you want to happen is the bad things from all the cultures get discarded and the good things get adopted. The metaphor of America as a melting pot was a good metaphor. And it's not, it's not that you, everyone comes to conform. It's rather what people thought that it's from people around the world come to America and what's ever good about what you're bringing, we're going to keep. And what's ever bad, you're free to discard it. No one's going to tell you, no, but this is the group you were born into. So this is what you have to be. You can't change. You have to just adopt the ideas and cultures of wherever you happen to have been born and who your parents and wider family were. No, you're free to pick and choose, take what you think is good. And that, um, that is an enormous positive. And it's, if you're going to label it as it's appropriation and a negative, I don't think that. But as I said, I haven't read enough about the debates about this to even get is there some issue that they're worried about? Like we talked about in regard to colorblindness. There are some issues that they're worried about that are legitimate things to be worried about. I haven't figured that out for appropriation. I'm wondering like, what, if you've read some of this, what your perspective is. I, I just started reading into it. I, so I don't feel I have a mastery of the debate. And I have the same kind of concern. Is it? I haven't yet seen things that I find compelling. Well, I do have a, sort of an additional worry, which is the the some of the there's a kind of defensiveness that comes out with this and, and the way it's, it's manifest particularly by students leaving aside the way that it's, this is debated and what worries me is that the kind of proprietorship that people are told they should have over a culture such that it excludes other people 
engaging in it or, or borrowing the good parts. And that to me is, is it suggests more a motivation of we're protecting a source of our self-esteem. And that, that so our, in our primary source of self-esteem and how dare you encroach on this, you're, you're taking away what little we have, which is one of the arguments I've seen. So, you know, you have all these other things and one, one or two things we have, what you, you now want to take from us. And the worry I have is, I mean, there's many things to worry about there, but it's, it's such an impoverished view of where you should get your, your sense of worth and your identity. Mm-hmm. And that it's, it takes for granted that, yeah, you should, you're born into this culture. This is the, naturally, this is the source of your value. And of course, you should be upset if people are, are encroaching on it or, or a, a, adopting it. And I have the same kind of reaction to you, which is, it, I think it's a good thing when people interact. I think it's bad to be insular. And if you can find things that are valuable in other cultures, that just makes your thinking and your life the better for it, because it's a, it's a genuine value that supports your life and, and your goals. So it would be worrisome to me if that, that becomes something, well, I don't actually know how you would get to the point where you see that as a problem. Now, again, there's, there's more to this than we've actually been able to touch on. So um, let, let's draw a line here and just wrap up uh, the conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. So I wanted to ask you, just to you know, in light of where we started with Martin Luther King's speech and his dream for what he holds up as an ideal, what we can think of as an ideal of judging individuals uh, by their chosen characters, their, their character. What do you think of, what would you like to see going forward? What are some things that are important uh, in your view on in getting us to the place where we can really deal honestly and, and, and productively with the issues of race and, and racism? It, it's the second half of what he says. So it's, I don't want my kids judged by the color of their skin. I want them judged by the content of their character. It's emphasizing the second part that what matters about a person, and certainly in a moral sense, what matters about the person is what he has chosen to become. It's the character the moral character that he has, he or she has developed as a result of the choices and actions over his life, that the choices and actions he's taken, that he's thought or not thought about, and that judgment means both positive and negative, that if, if he's made something good and noble about his person, his character, that you judge that positively. And if he hasn't, if he's, um, has, turned himself into, in one way or another, a bad person, that also is judged. So the, the part of what I like about the, this um, saying is it's not the modern view of don't judge. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Everybody's okay. They're, they're just doing them. And so it's, no, you should judge, but don't judge by characteristics or issues that do not matter at all. And judge the things that really do matter. And character does matter. You should be intimately concerned about the character you're developing yourself. That is who you are becoming. And you should look at other people in that same way. But that means jettisoning the idea that it's ethnicity that matters about you and other people. No, it's the content of their character. And that is not at all the same 
as what their ethnicity is. I would just add that I think if people want to find something to be proud of, it should be one of the things could be the character they have developed and that they're cultivating. And that's an ongoing investment to make their lives better because character and moral character in particular is a huge value. It's a means to sort of becoming a, a person who is successful in life. So, Ankar, let's, uh, so we're going to draw a line here. I wanted to, we mentioned earlier in the conversation. Ayn Rand's essay on racism. So let me recommend that people go find this. It can be found in The Virtue of Selfishness. And I believe it might be also available on our website if you search for it. Uh, it's the title is just Racism. And it's, as you said, it's a really profound analysis of the phenomenon and at the time, some of the dynamics going on in trying to combat it. So if you've enjoyed uh, this conversation, I would encourage you to subscribe to Ayn Rand Institute's YouTube channel and click the bell so you get notifications. Like this video to help us uh, know that you liked it and this is the kind of thing that draws your attention and help us draw more people to these videos. If you're on Facebook, please like the video and help us reach a larger audience. And we appreciate any kind of feedback you have. And if you want to suggest topics or you have thoughts about today's conversation, you can reach us uh, through email, newideal at aynrand.org. We always uh, read those. We don't always reply, but we definitely try to uh, hear uh, and learn from the feedback we get. So thank you, everyone. And thanks, Ankar. We'll be back uh, next time. Thanks. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.